1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is uh, Creon Levitt. He's a director of R&D at Planet Labs. And uh, Creon worked for 32 years at NASA Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley. Now the director of research at Planet Labs, where they build, launch, and operate the world's largest constellation of satellites to make change on Earth more visible and actionable. So we'll get into what that means. But Creon, thanks for coming.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, so... uh, how many satellites have been launched by uh, by Planet and are they in, uh, you know, what kind of orbit are they in? Like, What, what are a few details of the constellation?
2: Uh, okay, well, um, that's a bit of a complicated story, but uh, basically Planet has launched well over 300 satellites, although we do not have that many in orbit right now. We have, I think, around half that many in orbit right now. Um, a number of them were launched a few years ago into very low orbits. They were just for testing, and so they... Have reentered the atmosphere and burned up, Um, but uh, we have a uh, we have actually um, sort of a meta constellation up there now, built of multiple sub constellations. Um, I could pull up the exact numbers if I need to, but uh, we have uh, about 150 um, uh, small, well, uh, microsats up there, cubesats, uh, but they're quite powerful, and then we have. another constellation of uh, larger satellites uh, of similar power. And then we have uh, also the world's largest constellation of high-resolution imaging satellites. We have 15 um, SkySat satellites that we got when we acquired the company Terabella from Google. We merged mm-hmm. our two companies, and they uh, had a fleet of five high-resolution satellites in orbit. And since then, we've launched... 10 more. So these are all earth observation satellites, but they kind of run at different resolutions and different cadences. So the high resolution satellites that are in a lower, they're all in low earth orbit, various altitudes from say um, 350 to 450 kilometers. And um, they, uh, the high resolution satellites image various targets on the ground sort of by pointing at them, thousands of targets per day. And then the lower resolution satellites, which are in greater numbers, the smaller ones, they image all of the land area of the planet every day and coastal waters and islands and things like that. So we like to say we image the whole planet every day, but it's actually the day side of the planet and it's mostly land and coastlines.
1: So when you say uh, different resolutions, like what is the highest resolution that you have you know, are there higher resolution satellites out there that are like government satellites that are secrets or, you know, what could you say about resolution?
2: Well, I can't say anything about government secrets, of course, but, um, uh, <laughs> the, the, our, uh, what we call medium, we call, we talk about our medium resolution satellites and our high resolution satellites and our medium resolution satellites, um, image the earth in at around five meters per pixel, uh, and in multiple spectral bands, four five or, uh, eight spectral bands, depending on how new they are. So each pixel is roughly five meters square on the ground and uh, gets imaged in a bunch of visible and as well as in near-infrared colors. Mm. And then the high-resolution satellites, uh, they have a resolution of about 80 centimeters per pixel. So uh, let's see, that's about uh, uh, around three feet. And um, there are higher-resolution imaging satellites in orbit, even ones that are unclassified. Um, There's one in particular named worldview three that can image at 35 centimeters per pixel. It's like a billion dollar satellite. Uh, And the government buys the U S government buys a lot of that imagery, but other people do as well. But we have 15 satellites in orbit that can image at um, a little uh, less than half of that. High resolution worldview. As for the top secret government stuff, we could just assume that they are at least as good as the worldview 35 centimeter resolution and perhaps better. In fact, almost certainly better.
1: Do you think anyone's got the technology out there to do like, uh, you know, one inch or one centimeter resolution per pixel?
2: No, that's pretty much prohibited by the laws of physics. Um, things like at- atmospheric turbulence and atmospheric scattering and just the wave nature of light. Uh, means that that can't be done or probably can't be done. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, and what do you it, think
1: the, the wall is, the threshold, the, the limit for visible light?
2: Uh, as I understand it, the threshold is probably around um, maybe six inches on a good day, like on a perfect day with still c- cool air and just the right lighting and everything in perfect working precision on your satellite then you might be able to get a 6 inch resolution but um oftentimes not okay. like everything everything that happens just conspires to mess it up right if if the air is turbulent or if there's any haze or clouds or smoke or um if there's anything out of adjustment on your satellite you know it it always gets blurrier it never gets sharper
1: yeah so how about the all right so the images is you guys are looking every day at land masses and water and why look at things every day? Is there very much change day to day and things? And, you know, what do you see that's interesting that happens on a day to day change basis?
2: Um, well, of course, that depends on what spatial scale we're looking. If we're looking at high resolution, you know, we tend to be looking at, at areas where there's a lot of human activity and that changes on a day to day basis. You know, uh, business activity changes on weekly and of seasonal cycles, and we can see that to some extent by looking at um, all kinds of indicators of uh, business activity, um, industrial activity as well, similarly changes. You know, you can see if mines are running or not and if power plants are running or not and if ports are busy or not and how many ships are coming and going. Um, you, on the medium resolution side, um, that is Uh, more like agricultural situations. So we can tell the health of crops and we can tell the state of forests and we can tell kind of land use and we can see construction uh, projects going on. And so that stuff, you know, larger scale stuff does change tend to change a little more slowly. Right. Um, Or usually unless there's some giant forest fire or something, uh, and that might make it seem like, well, why bother imaging every day if, if stuff doesn't change every day at that scale? But one thing to remember is that half the time, on average, it's cloudy. We don't see anything in any given location. And some places are cloudy a lot more than half the time. So even if you look every day once, you might only get a clear shot every week. Hmm.
1: What about uh, climate change? Are you, are you able to see evidence of it or no evidence of it? You know, oh, certain ice movements and
2: movements. absolutely! We image, we image the. Actually, because of the orbits of our satellites, we tend to image the polar regions more frequently than we image the rest of the Earth. So when I say we image it every day, that's that's just near the equator where we have the sort of sparsest coverage. All the orbits kind of converge near the poles of all of our satellites, so mm-hmm. uh, we get higher coverage in the polar regions, and we have special exposure settings for. Uh, imaging the highly reflective ice and snow at the poles. And so, yeah, we see all kinds of evidence of um, the ice moving and the ice changing and, you know, daily, uh, seasonally. Uh, as far evidence of climate change, you know, we, we've we only been up there for a couple of years. So it's hard to say uh, from our data set alone um, what it says about climate change. One has to generally go back to the more long term, uh, lower resolution government data sets from like the Landsat satellites and things like that, so that you can look at, you know, 20, 30 years worth of data uh, for, you know, and high precision data for climate studies. Uh, But we, we see um, all kinds of environment, we have many users in the government and environmental uh, organizations and other governments and sciences, scientists and uh, university students. Uh, are They all have access to our data or can obtain it. Uh, we have site-wide licenses for universities and things like that. And so um, people do all kinds of studies on climate and ice flow and um, species diversity and land use. So, yeah, there's a lot of environmental uses for these data.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say is who uses the data and why. Maybe, like, in, in your opinion, what are some of the most useful things that have come from the data?
2: Well, there are really, I would say, three broad pr- classes of data use, and one might be called, uh, well, let's say, four classes. There's obviously, you know, government and intelligence kind of use cases for remote sensing data, and then there is there are commercial use cases such as we were talking about before, like business activity and agricultural activity, and predictions of future crop harvests and, you know, ways to tell farmers, you know, what fields need, what kind of treatment and how they're doing. So there's government stuff. There's kind of agricultural commercial stuff, including insurance. And then there's, um, environmental use cases, uh, including human rights use cases where we can, you know, we have several uh, situations where we've seen evidence of human rights violations or, um, military activity that governments have denied and yet were clearly visible and that hence they were accountable and they had to be more transparent. And then that kind of overlaps into scientific use cases, right? Uh, Where, as I said, climate, um, just studies of uh, ecology, geology, all sorts of things. So there's a lot of different use cases and a lot of different customers. We have a growing set of customers, markets expanding as people figure out uh, how this data can be useful
1: interesting um i know where where is the uh the technology going are you going to be i mean well all right let me, there's a couple questions in here how much data is generated from the images you're producing and are you able to get everything you want out of the data out of the images or do you need like a you know large scale processing of it because there is so much you know what's what's to be said
2: there well that's a really good question and it's a, it's a rather deep question So. Um, in terms of the raw amount of data, we download, I believe, around seven terabytes of de- seven terabytes a day of image data from our satellite constellations. and um we are actually, I believe required by law to uh, maintain copies in perpetuity of all the data we download. Um, right. And then um, but that raw data is not necessarily very suitable even for looking at because there's all kinds of calibrations that have to be applied to it. And um, it has to be sort of mapped onto the surface of the earth so that people know exactly can find it and know, know that it's accurately registered and uh, so that you can look at stacks of data over time. Cause that's a big application, but obviously no one's going to be looking at uh, seven terabytes of image data a day, or even if they're looking at just one spot, you know, we're shooting it every day. And so the amount of image data is kind of overwhelming for all but the smallest regions of interest. And so uh, the processing is kind of where the action is now. Like the question is, how do you turn a bunch of images or stack of images or a huge map of images into something actionable? And so that really depends on the user's applications. And some users do it themselves. And sometimes we um, provide The basics in an API format for them to uh, do uh, image classification and um, object recognition, things like that, on the data. So, for instance, they could uh, you can look for all roads in a certain area, and you can look for all roads that have been constructed in the last six months in a certain area, and then you can make a graph of how many there are, and things like that's just one application use case. But really, you're onto something there because Most people seem uh, convinced that the future of these massive data feeds is in, uh, you know, uh, image processing, machine learning, AI, and transforming the image data into maybe simpler forms of data that people are actually interested in, like how many houses were built or how many acres were burned, that sort of thing.
1: Hmm. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of all kinds of, uh, I guess, probably the most interesting thing would be time-lapse. I guess if you took a series of images over a season and time-lapsed them and then looked back one season, two season, three seasons, you know, like winter of this year, winter of last year, winter of the year before, and compared the time-lapse of all three in a certain region to see if there were different manifestations of winter or different things that... that hey,
2: that's, would that. Make, that's a great idea. So um, you can sign up uh for Planet Explorer, which is, I guess, kind of some sort of freemium uh uh browser... We have, and you can look through Mm. stacks of data and you can download them and you can process them right now. We're kind of moving more and more away from a download model and, uh, more and more towards a, you know, browse the data and then upload an algorithm and run it on our data in the cloud to produce the results Mm. you want. Because, um, otherwise, as I sort of alluded to before, it just ends up being a huge amount of data and. And a lot of process, you know, a lot of data downloaded to a local machine and then a lot of processing or a lot of data transported somewhere else in the cloud for a lot of processing. So um, we're kind of moving a little more towards a um, in-place model. Um, but all sorts of models are supported and everyone is encouraged to uh, try and uh, move on their own inspiration and see what they can do with it.
1: Any surprising or really interesting use cases of the data? that you thought were were interesting to you?
2: Oh, gosh, there's so many, especially, uh, yeah, I guess I'll talk about two that that I'm personally pretty uh, jazzed about. Um, The first one is is a commercial use case, but I believe it has really profound climate and environmental implications for the Earth, and that is uh, uh, the use of the daily data to tell ranchers where the – uh grass in their paddocks is at the perfect stage to send their ruminant animals out to graze so uh, if you want to keep the animals healthy and you want to keep the grass healthy and you want to keep the perennial grasses growing so that their roots get deeper and deeper and they sequester more and more carbon and rebuild the soil and um you have to send the animals out to graze at exactly the right time if the grass is too short Uh, it doesn't work out for the grass or the animals or the soil. And if the grass is too long, same situation. So uh, you have to know that the grass and the soil are at the optimal uh, situation for the grazing. And then you send your animals to that particular paddock. And I think that's something which uh, there's a company in New Zealand that's been uh, doing that with our data. And now they're scaling out to Africa. And I think that this is something that, should be scaled worldwide and could really transform the planet and um, provide high quality food in a carbon negative manner. So that's something I'm very excited about. And then to kind of switch gears, um, I would say another thing that I'm really excited about is a little more future oriented. And that is uh, the tracking of species diversity in um, various regions, particularly rainforests, but it doesn't have to be reinforced uh, as we put more and more spectral bands into our medium resolution and high resolution satellites. It becomes possible to really uh, figure out to some extent which species are living in which pixels and you know, of plants, mostly sometimes insects, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so this is a pretty important thing and a, and a big new field of science that's going to become more and more important if we want to understand globally what's going on with migration and climate change and natural processes as well as human uh, perturbations.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you if you can tag, let's say, a flock of birds and then use satellites to watch its migration or uh, a herd of animals or, or other objects. You know?
2: uh, by tag, what do you mean?
1: well tag it in such a way that a satellite could pick it out even though it doesn't have uh let's say it only has a you know three foot resolution Uh, well yeah i mean definitely
2: definitely i believe that there's a pretty big uh system of using radio tagging of animals you know they actually literally staple a tag onto the animal that's got a radio transmitter and um you know, naturalists have been using that sort of thing, and farmers too, of course. And I know that there are some satellite systems that can track those RFID kind of tags from orbit. Ours, we don't do that, at least not right now. Um, and as for trying to track, as for trying to, um, for trying to track animals from orbit, yeah, we've occasionally spotted whales, and um, I guess we should be able to see the sort of largest flamingo flocks and things like this? That's a good question. I don't really know what evidence of animals we've seen from orbit. Really large herds. Oh, well, we've seen cows. Uh, I mean, hmm. herds of cows. But we don't, I don't really know of any great use cases on there. I think some farmer actually aligned, lined up all his cows into a, a funny message for one of our <laughs> satellites once.
1: That's pretty cool. And you, you mentioned the other spectra, so visible, I guess you do infrared, you do UV or like what, what spectra do you use? And what if uh, we don't, you there? we don't.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well we don't really use UV because that's, that's all just scattered by the atmosphere. And so unless you're mm-hmm. just interested in high altitude clouds and aerosols, you can't really see UV from the surface. As you know, the, the atmosphere blocks UV, which is why we don't all get fried by the sun. Um, even Even blue light is pretty is pretty low information content in terms of what you can see of the ground. If you're looking in the blue spectrum, you know, you look at the Earth, it looks like from space, it looks like a big blue ball. So there's not that much to see in the blue. Um, Red and the green uh, are I mean, we we image in blue, but the red and the green are the really high information content, visible bands. And then um, there's a lot of infrared. Infrared is, in a sense, much more broad and varietal than visible visible is about one octave and infrared is several octaves and um that we we routinely image in the near infrared we've we've sent some cameras up to visit uh, to image in shortwave infrared which is a little bit more into the infrared and then there's medium wave infrared and long wave infrared which are kind of like thermal and um We've actually sent some thermal cameras up as well, but we don't have any products that are shortwave infrared or thermal infrared at this time. It's not to say that we won't have them in the future. We probably will. But uh, other satellites image at those longer wavelengths, um, medium, you know, shortwave infrared, medium wave infrared, longwave infrared. But as you go to those deeper and deeper infrared wavelengths, Ah, uh, sort of, because of the laws of physics, the light, the wavelength of light gets longer and longer, and hence the resolution gets worse and worse for a constant-sized telescope, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's like the thing which determines the resolution of a satellite, assuming you build it and operate it perfectly, is how big is the telescope compared to the wavelength of light that you're imaging. So, a given telescope, say like uh, our um, Skysat constellation has thirty-five centimeter diameter telescopes, you know, they have one resolution in the blue end of the spectrum. And then in the near infrared, they have like half that much resolution because the near infrared light is like twice the wavelength of the blue light. So anyway, that's a little technical, but, but the point is that as you go to the infrared, you either have to accept lower resolution or build a larger, more expensive satellite. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's other problems as well with infrared, like you have to start cooling the detectors, or otherwise you get too much noise. So it tends to get more expensive if you want high-quality um, infrared imagery, especially into the longer wavelengths. But you know that's probably going to get cheaper, and it's probably going to become more attractive for us to fly more of that stuff in the future.
1: You, what, what information do you think will be gotten from you know, exploring the infrared spectrum?
2: Oh, infrared can do magical things. Infrared uh, can um, tell you about the moisture content of, uh, of all kinds of organic material on the ground, alive or dead. Infrared can help you differentiate um, species, as we were talking about before. And if you chop it up fine enough, like if you have enough spectral bands in the infrared, like, you know, very narrow spectral bands, which, of course, is technically challenging, but certainly doable with enough time and effort. If you have narrow spectral bands in the, um, shortwave infrared, you can even detect, uh, gases of interest, such as carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor. Um, and so you can track, uh, the emission and transport of environmentally relevant gases, whether they're emitted by volcanoes or humans or, uh, the ecosphere. Anyway, so that's pretty interesting. And that has a lot of uh, potential applications. And also with the shortwave infrared, you can determine certain things about the mineralogical content of the ground that you're looking at. And that's interesting, although that probably doesn't change very quickly. (laughs) So it's not clear that you'd need regular updates on that.
1: Okay. And um, you mentioned a way for people to, uh, you know, through their computer explore the images. Can you restate that again? And I want to ask you for some more follow-up. And-
2: oh yeah. Well, um, I think it's dot uh, planet.com slash explorer. Uh, but if you just go to planet.com, I believe that it'll point people to the, uh, explorer program. And also, you know, of course, we're always looking for qualified, uh, qualified engineers and, um, and all kinds of people, hardware, software, spacecraft, um, domain experts, yeah, I'd say just rather than me bungling some URL that I can't quite remember, just go to planet.com and look around for the for Explorer and look uh, around for all sorts of things. We have blogs and um, use cases and you can see some of the beautiful imagery. Yeah. Mm,
1: right. <clears throat> and the best way to get in touch and ask questions for follow up is also planet.com. Was there another way to do that? Yeah. Uh,
2: well, I mean, um, we can I think that's the best way for now. Um And if, uh, someone has a, I'm a little bit, well, people can find my email address anyway online if they want to talk to me. So that's pretty obvious. Uh, yeah, I'm willing to entertain entertain questions as long as they don't get overwhelmingly uh, frequent.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, that's great. I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. It's like super interesting to see what the, you know, what all this is about. So thank you.
2: Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'd say that, uh, I would say that one one's one is sort of a problem that the space business has uh uh you know it's it's a kind of hard business it's expensive but it's really fun um mm. one thing that makes our company great is that we are really purpose driven like we yes yes we, we need to make money and you know stay in business and make profit but that is not primarily why we're doing this. Uh we recognize that that's a high priority for us and for our investors, but uh we're we're in it to make a positive difference in the world and to make uh the world a more transparent place and to make change visible and actionable and um so that that makes it a really great place to work and the people tend to be wonderful. Uh, uh an interesting um Pro, well, I'm going to skip the problem, but um, let me just say that another fun thing about the space business, not just for us, but really for anybody, as compared to, say, the software business, and this was said by a friend of mine who worked in the software business when I took her to a rocket launch with our when some of our satellites went up. We've had well over 30 launches with our satellites on it, and uh, she just afterwards said, you know, at my company, when we do a launch, we rearrange some menu bar or something like that and call it a launch. When you guys do a launch, it really is a launch. So oh, I gotta care yeah, that. That's
0: cool, very, very cool. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it.
2: Thank you.